Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast with your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome, everyone, to episode number three of the Global Security Protection Group podcast. I'm your host, Ron Jacobus, and joining me today is our guest, James Hamilton. James is probably best described as a powerhouse in the protective security world. His journey began with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where he served as a special agent for over 17 years. While at FBI, James created the Bureau's Close Protection Training Course and served as a security advisor for the Director of the FBI and the U.S. Attorney General. Today, James is a Senior Vice President at Gavin DeBecker & Associates, where he is responsible for quality and protection and training. In his role, James leads the Protection Quality Team, as they conduct audits of GDBA's protective security programs to ensure the company's internal strategies align with their clients' unique needs, and to ensure that the protectors meet specific training, fitness standards, and certification requirements. James holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science from the Citadel College, the Military College of South Carolina. He is a member of the ASIS Executive Protection Council, and he is certified as an instructor in Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training, known better by its acronym, ALERT. And with that said, James, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast today. I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk about your journey through the world of executive protection. Thanks, Ron. I'm honored to be here. I'm really excited. Thank you so much for having me. Well, James, I'm excited as well, and and really I'm looking forward to our conversation, especially from your vantage point as both a protector as well as a trainer in the industry today. Now, it was mentioned in your bio that you graduated from the Citadel. Funny enough, a former boss of mine, Senator Bob Hall in Texas, also was a graduate of the university. What was your experience like at the Citadel, and what impact did it have on shaping you as the individual you are today? Well, I was a what they call a legacy. My father had gone there uh, in the 60s before he went to Vietnam, and he um, basically challenged me because when I was thinking about college, I said, well, what about the Citadel? And he said, no, it'll be too tough for you. You know, you can't cut it, which he kind of knew that would get me going. So I applied and I got in, you know, by the skin of my teeth. But that place changed my life. I was probably one of those guys that, you know, would have gone into law enforcement or gone to prison. I was you know, one of those guys. I, I could have gone either way, probably. Um, I was just kind of wild. And then I went to that school, which is just incredible with regards to discipline, attention to detail, personal responsibility, physical fitness, like all of it. And I just soaked it up like a sponge. Just absolutely loved that school, everything we were doing there. They're still doing there. Uh, it just really set my trajectory, kind of you know, got me into law enforcement. And then the rest was kind of history. But it's funny because when I was in the FBI, a lot of the agents would ask me, you know, where I learned about leadership. And, and I would really always point back to the Citadel because I was still doing things in the FBI to those students that I was doing to, to cadets at the Citadel. Um, Because those lessons are just learned and they're never forgotten. So shout out to all the graduates out there. I just, you know, I love that place and and, and all it stands for. Now, James, I'm sure your experience as a student at a military university was radically different than my experience, say, as a student at a state college. Could you explain what perhaps day one was like at the university for yourself? Well, it's it's surreal. Um, They have a training, what they call a cadre, training cadre. These are upperclassmen, you know, who are responsible for you. And it's a matriculation process, but you come in there, you know, in civilian clothes, you sign in and then they just begin the process, which is shave your head, issue your uniforms, 
put you in formation, teach you how to march. And literally by the end of the very first day, they have you in your, you know, in your dorm, you've met your roommate, you've met your company, they're in platoons, really. You're in your platoon at, you know, at an assigned company. And and by the end of that one day, they've already marched you out onto the parade deck in formation and you take an oath. So it's, it's an unbelievable experience because it, it happens so quickly, but the cadre just says, they just do an incredible job to take you from civilian to marching in one day. Um, and I'll never forget my, my roommate. I, I had like nine my freshman year. They kept quitting. But um, he said to me that first night, he said, hey, man, do you think it'll be this hard tomorrow? And I just kind of rolled my eyes because I knew like he's not going to make it um, because he hadn't read up on what that place was all about. And, and it, it was tough. I mean, the attrition rate was god awful. I, I can't even tell you how many people we lost that year. Uh, if I said, you know, 30%, I think I'd be close. But um, yeah, it was, it was very, very difficult. Oh, no doubt. I bet it was an extremely difficult endeavor. And from what you just have shared with our audience, it sounds as though the Citadel is very much a make it or break it environment, one where you're exposed to leadership very early on as a student. Yeah. And you also learn good and bad leadership, you know, so they do do a good job with the leadership. But, you know, back in the day, there were no adults in the barracks. So when they closed the gates at night, it was basically 21 year old men running the school, no locks on the doors. And so it can get out of hand real quickly. And it did. I mean, there's stories all over. If you Google search the Citadel, you'll read about it. Um, and it, so you, you also saw a lot of bad leadership. And, you know, just like in our work now, I, I, I learn a lot from the bad things as, as much as I do from the good things. But you did, you did learn how to take care of people. You learned a lot about morale. Attention to detail was a, you know, they are probably the best I've ever seen with regards to attention to detail because there's eyes on you at all time. If you flinch, if you have one hair out of place or, you know, a string that you never would have seen. They'll see it. That cadre will see it. They'll call you out on it. And then they make the punishment was so severe that you would never forget it. You know, it was one of those things. It wasn't like, hey, maybe you should think about X. No, it would be you don't ever do this again or you're going to feel the pain. Um, they were masters at the art of human you know, cruelty, basically. Wow. And I'm sure that translates almost directly to when you stepped foot on the academy lines, first as a county deputy sheriff and then with the FBI. And I'm particularly interested in how you made the decision to pursue a career law enforcement in the first place. So the Citadel had a, through the major that I was in, had a internship program with uh, many uh, agencies, but I I happened to get the Charleston Police Department as an internship. And basically that meant as a cadet in, in not civilian clothes, but kind of a uniform that looked, you know, like civilian clothes, like a blazer and a tie. I would go to the Charleston Police Department once a week and I'd ride along with these officers. Uh, and it was just an amazing experience. I, I, I got to see uh, what they'd allow you type deal. Um, but I just really knew, hey, I really, really like this. And I was so, you know, I thought, well, coming out of the Citadel, you know, certainly I can get hired by the FBI or the DEA or, or one three-letter agency. So I went to the FBI as a senior cadet. I said, hey, you know, how do I apply? And they said, you're not going to apply. You need to get some experience. And this agent in the Charleston office, I don't know his name, but I always wanted to say thank you to him. Uh, he just said to me, look, go be a lawyer or go be a police officer uh, and then call us in three years. And, you know, so that's what I did. I uh, became a deputy sheriff in uh, Columbia, South Carolina, really enjoyed the work. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, you don't have any civil service protection uh, at a sheriff's office in the South, especially in South Carolina. And, you know, guys are getting fired at at each election cycle. And I just kind of figured, you know, this probably isn't for me. If I can move on, I'd like to. And so I had applied with the FBI and, you know, by fluke luck, I guess, I don't know, I, I got accepted. 
It was one of those times in the late 90s where the FBI started to hire a lot of law enforcement officers. And, and I was just very, very lucky that um, I got picked up. And I, I, I uh, went in 97. So I did five years at the sheriff's office. You know, but I learned a lot. I mean, we a deputy died while I was there and a lot of duty. And it was an operational thing, obviously. But there were some training issues there. And it, it teaches you a lot. I mean, going back to the Citadel, it was all about accountability. Well, you know, when you lose an officer, you know, that's the ultimate accountability. I mean, as you know, you've probably known friends or acquaintances who died in a line of duty. And it really hits home, man. It hits home real, real hard. And, you know, when you're that young, I was, heck, I was 22 when Joe died. And, you know, you just kind of make a kind of an agreement with yourself that, hey, that's not going to be me if I can help it. It really did set my trajectory kind of into that training world. And it's funny. I mean, I ended up getting into, you know, FBI training, but it really was a, a great time. I enjoyed my time there. I still stay in touch with those deputies. Um, but it was a good, you know, good first step because when I got in the FBI, you know, I got assigned to a field office. I got really accepted by the uh, the task force that I was on. Those were, you know, local police officers because they knew I had been a police officer. There was a lot of acceptance that I felt I got, you know, o- over maybe an agent that wasn't a cop or, you know, was a lawyer or, or whatever. So that really served me well, I think. Well, I'm sure it did. And as a local law enforcement guy who's had the feds show up on a couple of my calls, primarily those bank robberies, it doesn't take long for us to sniff out the special agent in the room who has had prior law enforcement experience. And James, you, you also mentioned your friend Joe, who died in the line of duty. And I, I couldn't agree more that when it comes to law enforcement, a line of duty death really is the ultimate accountability. Unfortunately, I too have lost officers from our department in recent years. And tragically, two of those officer deaths were actually off-duty. One was murdered while out at a taco truck with his girlfriend, and the other was a victim of an armed robbery attempt while house hunting with a significant other. I've talked about the sort of natural progression from military or law enforcement into the executive protection world in previous episodes, and while there are plenty of officers who toe-dip into this industry during their law enforcement careers, there are also a lot who don't, and those individuals don't receive any real-world experience or even training in third-party protection. And on that note, it really wasn't until you joined the FBI that you were exposed to the world of executive protection as well. Now, knowing you to be a humble guy and certainly somebody who would skip over your list of accomplishments during your years at the Bureau, I just want to take a moment to mention a few of them on your behalf. While at FBI, you were hand-selected to serve on the Tactical Training Unit, where you were instrumental in the development of an active shooter training and guidance program. You also became a certified instructor in firearms, tactical skills, emergency driving, and SWAT operations. And you also spent a total of four years on the FBI Director's Protective Security Detail Team. Now, did you seek out executive protection opportunities while at the FBI, or did they kind of find you along the way? And did you find that your service in the FBI set you on an eventual path to where you are today with Gavin and DeBecker? And lastly, I'm curious, was there a little bit of a culture shock when you made your transition from county law enforcement into the FBI? Oh, yeah, a thousand percent. You know, when I got to Quantico, you know, I came from the Citadel and, you know, I really believed in, you know, like standards. And so when we all took the fit test, I think it was the second day and about half my class failed it. You know, I fully expected half my class to be going home. Right. Like that was what I thought. And then they did not go home. They were you know, given multiple opportunities to pass the fit test, which really, really bothered me. And so there's a lot of, you know, being a police officer before and then going to the FBI, there's a lot of, you know, well, this isn't, you know, they were saying they're law enforcement. And I'm like, well, this isn't like the same, you know, an FBI agent isn't in a patrol car with a radio and answering calls. You know, it's totally different than an officer on the street. So I just kind of was like, I'm not going to use the word disillusioned. I would just say that it, 
it definitely wasn't what I thought it would be. And so, you know, I got into the bureau and I got field office like they do basically, a, I don't know who, but somebody throws a dart at a map and they send you somewhere. And so I ended up going to Omaha, Nebraska. And my wife was great. She's like, look, you just, you got to make the best of this, man. You know, we've already moved across the country and you, you got to make the best of this. And, and she was right. And so um, in the FBI, you can get into the SWAT program. Uh, you know, you try out every uh, field office for your listeners who aren't aware that the FBI, all 56 field offices have a SWAT team made up of agents. And then there is like the hostage rescue team. Like they're the tier one entity for the U.S. They are it. And that's a full time team uh, out of Quantico. Um, and so if someone says they were with HRT, I mean, that's a that's a huge deal. So always I'd check them, make sure they're, they're not lying. Um, but, yeah, I was just an, an FBI SWAT guy uh, at a field office with some really, really great people. I was fortunate enough that one of, you know, one of the former HRT guys had come back to be my team leader. So I learned an awful lot from him. And then back to your question, what ends up happening is uh, when a VIP would come into your area responsibility or AO, uh, they would ask the local SWAT team to do a, a dignitary protection mission. So we were having some Supreme Court people, Clarence Thomas, uh, the Attorney General Ashcroft had come through a couple of times. And, and anyway, I'd done the protection as you know a SWAT team member. And I just really liked it. Um, I, I you know, had been working cases. I was on a drug squad and I was also on SWAT. So a lot of agents listening would go, yeah, that's like the best of both worlds. But uh, the FBI has uh, two full-time protective details. And I was, you know, after I'd, I'd worked with them and I looked at, I really liked the protection. I really liked the mission, you know, protecting another human being. I really liked the, uh, you know, the success of it. You knew, okay, at the end of the day, if he's still alive and he's not, you know, injured or embarrassed and I've done my job. And so there was a lot of solace in that and that, you know, okay, I, I did something versus, you know, a federal case could take you three, four years to work. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office never prosecuted. It felt like it never ended. So I, I kind of liked the protection thing. And uh, there was an opening. Uh, and the way that they do it is you you have to be SWAT certified to put in for one of those details. They protect the attorney general of the United States and they protect the FBI director. And so I put in for the FBI director's detail in 04 and I was lucky enough to be selected for that team. And I got uh, you know transferred to D.C. and I was uh, with that team for four years with director uh, Robert Mueller and just a, an incredible experience. Um, and as you know, from doing protection, there's good and bad. And, and any secret service guy listening knows exactly what I'm getting ready to say, which, you know, you're gone a lot and you're living someone else's life. And that's the biggest thing about protection is, you know, it's not about you. It's about the protectee and, and you're living his life. I was gone, you know, 200 50 plus days my first year on the detail. Uh, it was hard. You know, it's hard on a family. It's, it's really, really difficult to be a father and a husband and a protective agent. But I absolutely loved it. I love the work. I love those guys on that detail. I still talk to them today. Um, best friends I've ever had. And after four years of that, you know, there's a shelf life to it, unfortunately. I, uh, I was just looking around like, I, you know, I got to get off this crazy train or, you know, it's not going to be good for my personal life. So I, uh, I put in for the Quantico because I had fortunately had some training experience, had some instructor ratings. And uh, back in the day, it was called Practical Applications Unit. Now it's called the Tactical Training Unit. But it's Hogan's Alley for anyone listening. If they know Hogan's Alley from Quantico or Silence of the Lambs, that's where I was. I mean, that's got to be pretty amazing to be an instructor at the infamous 
Hogan's Alley. Yeah, it was fun. You know, training new agents, that was a great. And so I got to do a lot of the kind of the Citadel stuff with those new agents and lead them and help them. And, and I really just kind of poured into them thinking about Joe. I mean, back to where we talked about, you know, my friend that died. I, I just, when I trained those new agent classes, I just kept talking about, you know, I want you to come home. And, you know, I don't care if you get fired. I want you to at least be alive. And, you know, I treated him like Joe. Like, what would I have told him? You know, and, and all of that was very, very personal to me. Uh, and I still talk to those students today. Um, that was a great job. Great, great unit to be in. Um, and then kind of, you know, tangentially to that, because I was at Quantico um, and had access to, you know, the track and, and, and all the things we had down there. Um, the Bureau, the guys who were running what was called the Protective Operations Unit. They asked me if I would, you know, create like a standalone two-week school. I mean, there was some training beforehand. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I just created this wheel out of nowhere. There had been some training, but it wasn't formalized. And so I created this two-week school that I thought, okay, this is what an agent needs, you know, because like, you know, I mean, the basic police academy or FBI academy or any of that stuff, executive protection is not one of the things they get taught. This isn't the secret service, right? So an FBI agent is not taught a whole hell of a lot about executive protection or close protection. Um, so, you know, I, I was like, okay, I've been on the detail. What would I like them to learn? Basically, my goal was take an agent, and train him so that when he or she steps into the detail first day, you know, they can ride in the fall car and do an advance. Like that was it. Not maybe be body person or AIC, but be able to just assimilate, you know, effectively and safely. That's a big thing. Not shoot somebody because we do carry a lot of weapons on that detail. And so back to, you know, how this Gavin thing all happened was we were all, the FBI was always kind of involved in the gift of fear book, you know, reading that book. They were issuing it to us. And man, I, I didn't know Gavin owned a protection company. Okay, I just thought he was an author who wrote this cool book called The Gift of Fear. Well, when I got to training and and I was doing the training all the time and I was getting ready to run up into this protection school, I was looking for material everywhere. And I I heard about this book called Just Two Seconds that Gavin DeBecker wrote. So I read it and I was like, oh, my God, this is really, really good stuff. I wish I'd known this, you know, when I was doing protection work. Um, Anyway, that's another story. But um, there was a drill in that book called Time and Distance. And I was like, this is very good and smart and interesting. So I'm, I put it into the FBI curriculum for that you know, training school. And I didn't ask him, but I just did it. And uh, I issued that book out to the agents. Well, Gavin ended up getting in touch with me somehow. And he said, are you using my stuff at the FBI Academy? And I was like, well, yes, sir. I thought I was in trouble. And uh, he's like, well, can I help you in any way? And I was like, well, yeah, like really kind of explain this drill and what am I missing? You know, all that stuff. And he said, well, why don't you come to L.A. and see how we do it at our academy? So I did and um, just really was impressed with the facility and the protectors and the people I met and, and Gavin, obviously. Uh, and then he made me an offer and I said, yes, sir. And I went to work for him almost seven years ago and never really looked back. Wow, James. And y'all are probably one of the more recognized organizations within the executive protection industry. But for those in our audience listening today who might be unfamiliar with this company and the work you guys do, could you share a brief overview about GDBA, its mission, and the service portfolio your team provides to such a wide variety of clientele? It's been around for 41 years. Gavin started it. Um, He just did a podcast with Joe Rogan where he talked about his first client, I think was Elizabeth Taylor, and he just started you know, as a young man, 20, 21 years old, and it's grown into what it is today, which is about 500 plus protectors. Uh, we also not just do close protection. We also offer consulting in residential security, threat assessment, uh, investigations, active shooter, as you mentioned. But our heart and soul and our, our real work is protecting high net worth individuals. Well, we have a 50-year confidentiality agreement, so we don't ever talk about clients, but 
you know, at one time we said it was 10 of the most at-risk individuals, you know, uh, in America. And I think that's still true. But we run an academy uh, that we train our own protectors. These are all uh, employees. They're not contractors. They, uh, you know, they have 401k program, medical, uh, all of it. You know, it's, it's, it's a real company of some really dedicated individuals who really just want to do protection. And, and that's, even though we have other offerings, I mean, that really is our, our bread and butter. It's the protector. It's the individual out there at an estate or driving a client or at the office um, or traveling, you know, doing close protection for individuals who are paying for it. I tell you what, that's a wonderful description of the company, and uh, it's been around for a bit. Uh, James, you've been with it uh, for a minute yourself, and uh, for anybody who hasn't had a chance to listen to uh, Gavin's interview on Joe Rogan, it is well worth your time, so go check that out. And uh, now, James, I know we touched on uh, New Protectors and GDBA's Essential Protection Skills Academy, but uh, you also highlighted something different there and uh, mentioned her briefly, and this was your spouse. And I know as a law enforcement officer, protection security practitioner, and business owner myself, that single life uh, can be quite thrilling. But a lot of the men and women that I work around uh, happen to be married. And uh, I will tell you what, whether you are in protection, law enforcement, the military, or a similarly time-intensive career where you are gone uh, just a lot of the time, it's important to have somebody on the other end who's willing to, at least at times, hold down the other side of the fort. Um, I would be very interested in hearing your perspective and insight as someone who has managed both a successful professional career and navigated the complexities of married life. For our listeners who are out there you know, living the, the single life but contemplating uh, if they can do this job and uh, balance any sort of family life, and also for those protected who may be uh, newly navigating or currently struggling to uh, excel in both their professional and family life. The critical thing, and I think what I see in my own protectors is they didn't set the expectations on the front end, meaning that they told her, you know, hey, this is what I do, but it's okay. You know, we can still have, you know, work-life balance and and all those things. Uh, I don't think that's very fair. You know, I think you have to be very, very uh, honest with your spouse about what the realities of the work are. And the realities of the work are, are very, very you know difficult because you're living someone else's life. So they have to kind of know on the front end what what they're signing up for. That that's a big piece of it. And then the other piece of it is, you know, who are you? And this is really important. But like, who are you as a person? I mean, if you live and breathe this stuff, and that's your calling. That you know. And I always ask guys, you know, what would you do for nothing? Right? Like, what would you do for no money? And if the answer is, I would protect another human being for no money. Well, then that is what you should be doing. You know, it could be anywhere. It could be with us. It could be with any company. I don't care who. You can be on your own doing protection because that's where you should be. And if you're not there, if that's really what makes you breathe, well, then if you're not doing that, you're not going to be a very good husband. Okay. So if, if I went and sold real estate or insurance, though I might be home more, my wife would not be happy because I would be probably an SOB to live with. Right. So that's the thing is I think you got to set the expectations. And the other thing is you have to communicate. You know, I, I would tell you Skype or FaceTime or, or whatever platform you use. Man, I wish I'd had that back when I was on the FBI detail. Technology like that is, is really, really helpful when you're apart um, and you're going to be apart a lot. Uh, that's the thing about protection. You're, you're gone a lot because you're living someone else's life. But if you can at least communicate, and that's what I tell guys too, is you have to make an effort. I know they're tired. These days are forever. You know, they're 18, 19 hour days. You got to put in the time to call her, email her, text her, send her flowers, you know, whatever you, I mean, you got to really put in the time um, and you'll be successful. I think, you know, Gavin has a saying that, you know, how, how a man does one thing is how he does everything. So, you know, if you're a very, you know, 
competent and committed protector, you're probably a pretty competent and committed husband. Yeah, you know, I've, I've rarely seen it where a guy's like this awesome, you know, person in business and then he's a piece of shit as a father. I just, I don't see that. You know, I just, I don't know. I, I, I think how you do one thing is how you do everything. And, and you just got to, you know, you got to make sure you're putting in the work on both ends, you know. Oh, definitely. And I think it comes down to your foundational character and kind of who you are at your core. And I look back on my childhood with a father who was an airline pilot. And while there was a stint uh, shortly after 9-11 where he kind of fell into the protection world as well, he certainly was gone just as much. And I'll tell you what, he was on the road long before there was FaceTime or Skype or any of these other mediums of communication. And uh, back then we were lucky to have just a quick phone call from his hotel at the end of the day. And he used to create these little emergency contact cards for each of his trips with information for all the hotels during his layovers and emergency contacts for the airline if by some reason there was an event that went sideways while he wasn't home. Um, And I was fortunate enough to have a a front row seat and watch my parents navigate that challenging dynamic um, darn near flawlessly. And uh, I'm sure you were doing the same or something similar with your family before there was just all this ease of communication. It's tempting, you know, to to be single and to go do your thing and get a divorce. I mean, because it's it's not like it used to be, you know, I mean, our grandparents and even our great grandparents lived in a society where you got married and it was, you were married for the whole long haul, you know? And I, I think, you know, rightly or wrongly, I think we're, we're now in a situation where you can you know get a divorce a lot quicker. You see it a lot quicker and guys just give up. Um, but it goes back to Ron, what you just said, which is, you know, your character and what kind of man you want to be or, you know, woman you want to be and, and where your priorities are. Um, and that, that's, you know, cause that's, that's everything, man. I mean, I tell guys all the time, ethos and virtues, they, they don't come to you in the moment. You know, courage doesn't come to you, man. You got to have it. You got to live that because it's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. You're absolutely right, James. I couldn't agree with you more about that. And uh, I think this is a perfect segue to dive further into the specifics of your Essential Protection Skills Academy. But first, I would like to take a brief pause and listen to a message from our sponsors for today's episode. So to everyone listening, we will be back with more from our guest, James Hamilton, in just a moment. This episode is sponsored by EP Access and Perry Carpenter, author of the Security Culture Playbook. EP Access is the first online learning platform for executive protection professionals. If you want to learn skills that are in demand in the real world, the ones that make the difference for employers, then look no further than EP Access. These courses are based on best international practices that are proven in the real world. Encourage listeners to apply an intelligent mix of people, procedures, and technology to mitigate risks as effectively as possible. Pay attention to scope so they are pertinent to major corporate and family office security departments, large EP companies, and smaller independent providers, and budgets of all kinds, are taught by professionals with extensive and recent practical protective experience, and combine online, in-person, and sustainment training in a hybrid learning approach that encourages effective, efficient, and lasting skill building. If you are looking for an online platform to continue your education and knowledge base in executive protection, then check out EP Access on their LinkedIn, or at their website at epaccess.com. Our second sponsor for today's episode is Perry Carpenter. He's the Chief Evangelist and Strategy Officer at Know Before, the world's most popular security awareness and simulated phishing platform. Perry is the co-author of a brand new best-selling book, The Security Culture Playbook. The topic of security culture is mysterious and confusing to most leaders, but it doesn't have to be. In The Security Culture Playbook, Perry Carpenter and his co-author, two veteran cybersecurity strategists, 
deliver experience-driven, actionable insights into how to transform your organization's security culture and reduce human risk at every level. This book exposes gaps between how organizations have traditionally approached human risk, and it provides security and business executives with the necessary information and tools needed to understand, measure, and improve facets of security culture across the organization. Pick up your copy today at Amazon or the Security Culture Playbook website. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to episode number three of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. We're here with our guest, James Hamilton. And uh, and James, we were just about to jump further into your academy program at GDBA. Um, I'd really like to hear more about the importance of this foundational character and the core of a person as it relates to your training. And as you know, some of our listeners have yet to start their journey into the world of executive protection, but are looking for that avenue in. And I really think your team puts on a fascinating and well-rounded academy. And so could you explain the importance of mindset for your students or future students and how it really sets them up for success in their training and also in their careers as protectors? When I first saw EPS, it's just an acronym for essential protection skills. As an FBI agent, I came and saw EPS and I was like, wow, this training is amazing because they were doing something that I firmly believed in, which is you know standards. And I always say standards are only standards if they're enforceable. If you don't enforce them, then they're just suggestions. So you can suggest that someone be in shape, but if you don't actually test them and then hold them accountable, well, then it's not a standard. And so to go to our academy, for instance, you know, and any listener who's interested, I tell you, go to gdba.com and hit, you know, apply or join us. And it'll tell you exactly where we have openings. And it'll tell you exactly what, the, you know, basically the answers to the test, meaning the physical fitness requirements, what they are, it just lays it all out. And, you know, you get tested the second day. And if you don't pass, you're going home. Okay. And, and I like that. I mean, I was just there this past week and, and I was saying to the class that you know was still there because they had passed i said look around at the empty seats you see these empty seats those are people who didn't think we were serious okay we're serious and now they're not here anymore well that sets the tone of the mentality that we're operating under which is we're not playing around here okay this is this is a real deal and we if we say we're gonna do something we're gonna do it and so that's like the beginning and then what we're doing for those seven eight nine days we're testing courage. And it is a very, very long job interview. And you can really kind of, you know, for an hour or 30 minutes on an interview, you can you can maybe pull the wool over someone's eyes. But seven days of immersion, you're living in our camp with our instructors and we're watching everything and we're listening to your peers. We're listening to, you know, we're doing peer review. We're doing all that stuff, you know, and we're basically seeing, are you the right person, you know, to be a protector? And, and what, you know, back to your pointed question, we are testing courage. We want to see, will you do what your body doesn't want you to do? Okay. So every one of us, you know, our body is amazingly designed, but it's amazingly designed to keep you safe. It does not like pain. It doesn't like, you know, anything that makes it uncomfortable. It moves away from that. Well, when all hell breaks loose and God forbid you're under attack, you know, it's, it's a situation you don't want to be in and your body's going to fight it and you're not, you're going to want to save yourself. But our job is to save another human being. So we want to see, will you say the heck with this, you know, danger, I'm going, I'm going to do X. And so it's not a secret. We use, you know, like we use dogs. We use police dogs to test your courage. So will you accomplish a task with that dog coming at you? And once it latches on, will you continue, you know, to accomplish the task or will you quit? Period. That's it. Yes or no. 
And, you know, it's a great gauge. I mean, I, again, I just had this discussion the other day with my leaders. Like, I can't tell you what a protector is going to do in the moment of truth. I can tell you I've trained him or her to handle, you know, danger and, and overcome it. But we never know what's going to happen, you know, when it's when the rubber meets the road type deal. But I can say that I at least trained them, you know, for that situation. I've trained them to handle that fear and to, you know, accept it and then move forward. I know we've done that. And, you know, and we also use water and a lot of people don't use water. And that's the other thing I really liked about EPS when I went out, because when I made the FBI school, like we have to have some type of water component swimming because I'd been on details, you know, like in the Caribbean where you might find that one of the protectors can't swim too good. Well, if he's on shift, you know, that's not an option, right? Like I can't call the, the swimmer guy who's sleeping and say, hey, man, the boss is going, you know, scuba diving, you're up. You know, we all need to be familiar and trained to the, you know, to a level in which we can all just jump in there. Okay. So when I went to EPS and I saw their pool, I, I love that. And so, yeah, we, we use swimming. Uh, everyone has to pass. It's a difficult swimming, you know, evolution, but, you know, we know that our clients are going to be in and around boats, yachts, pools, lakes, beaches, you name it. And we want our protectors to have a, a degree of comfort in the water. And as anyone listening knows, you know, the water is a great equalizer. Well, the water certainly is, and I, and I love that your team includes swimming as a training evolution. And uh, to your point, as they say, we don't, as individuals, and certainly as protectors, rise to the occasion, but rather we fall back to the level of our training. And like you said, while you can't predict the exact actions of a protector during their moment of truth, you can equip them with the right tools and ensure that they have a mindset that will allow them to successfully think and operate through a problem or critical incident. A lot of it's just the mental realities of the work, right? So you know, one of the things I like to talk to them about is, you know, I, I ask them this question, you know, would you hire you? Meaning, you know, would you spend good money for you? Because that's at the end of the day, this is a business. And, you know, I like to see, you know, their looks and the guys that are immediately kind of nodding their head like, hell yeah, I'd hire me. Well, that's great. I like that. I like confidence, not arrogance. So that's good. But the ones who aren't sure I say to them, you know, if it's three in the morning and some person jumps the fence of the estate and starts charging toward, you know, the home, you are literally the only thing between that individual and the person we're being paid to protect. Do you have the courage to go confront that individual? I mean, that's it. Like we can call 911 and we will. But at the end of the day, they're not going to be right there. Okay, you've got to make a decision and you're going to have to confront this individual more than likely. So do you have the courage to do that thing? Because that's what you're getting paid to do. Um, and that's a mental thing. That's a lot of that is, you know, are, are you mentally and, you know, psychologically prepared to go do what needs to be done? And not everyone is ready to, you know, what I say is, you know, write that check, basically, you, you know, the bill's due now and it's time to pay it. Um, and so that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking to see, will this person stay or is he going to run away? And then we had a couple of guys this week just say, hey, this isn't for me. And they leave. And I love that. You know, I, I love it. And I'm sure you've experienced that too, Ron, where, you know, somebody got into law enforcement and, and their heart wasn't in it, but they were doing it for something else or someone else. And they really should have just quit, but they wouldn't for some other reason. And I, I think it shows a lot of courage when someone says, hey, this isn't for me and I'm out of here. And I love to hear that. I mean, I hate to lose people. But if they know through training, hey, this isn't for me, then they certainly you know, aren't going to be great as a protector you know, on one of our clients. So that is another really good thing I think that we do. You know, and we're not going to talk them into staying. I mean, I can't make someone stay. And if they know in their heart this isn't for them, then they're right. And, and it's time to shake their hand and say goodbye and, and good luck. 
because this job isn't for everybody. Oh, absolutely. And and like you said, I've got nothing but respect for somebody who shows up to a course, realizes that they are a step or two out of their league, and has enough courage and self-awareness to say, hey, you know what, this isn't appropriate for me, and I'm going to instead slide down a couple rungs and build back up from there. Or even the individuals who realize that this work just isn't for them at all. And that doesn't just protect themselves, but it also protects everybody else who's still working in the profession. It was actually at my first training course with Progressive Force Concepts where our uh, previous guest from episode number two, Aaron Arp, works. When we had two individuals during the uh, protective pistol shooting course who self-identified that it was just a little bit outside their capabilities. And while I'm a firm believer that every professional starts as an amateur, it was really great that they had the courage to leave the course before being ejected by the staff for something like unsafe firearms handling or some other safety hazard from pushing beyond their limit. And credit to PFC because they actually opened up a nearby range bay uh, during the training and uh, they had an extra instructor on site who actually took the time to work with those two students who, as I remember, um, passed the course on a later date. Now, James, you also wrote an intriguing article, and for anybody interested in reading it, you guys can find it on uh, his LinkedIn page titled Respecting the Basics, in which you described that many of your EPS Academy students arrived hungry for some type of high-speed training, whether it was knife fighting, combat handgun shooting, tactical breaching, or any of these other cool kind of hard skills that are associated with protection and tactical operations. But instead, they left with this newfound respect for the basics of protection. Can you elaborate for our audience about the importance of the basics and why you find them so integral to success in this industry? Well, thanks for that. Uh, thank you for saying that. Um, and I enjoy writing those things. And as we, you know, as we get older, we we understand the importance of you know doing the the simplest things and the most basic things, doing them very very well. Um, and what I know, you know, from studying this this world for at least thirty years, is you know I'm speaking specifically for U.S. CEO, corporate protection type work. The basics, that is where the money is made, okay? Knowing the craft, meaning knowing where attacks will take place, for instance, will make you a better protector. If you're a protector who is not taught that and you just think, okay, I'm armed to the teeth, I'm ready to hunt bear, and those bear can be anywhere, I don't think you're going to be in a very effective protector because you can't, you know, if you use Cooper's color coach, you can't stay red all the time. You, you just can't, right? And so. If you study the craft and your you know, the basics, so the basics would tell you that most inappropriate encounters or attacks happen in and around the vehicle. Okay, I can do. I'm not just saying that. That's a statistical reality. Okay, if you read the book, just two seconds, they studied more than 1,400 attacks, and that's what they learned. Is that 64% of attacks happen in and around the vehicle? 77% of those attacks are successful. So what that tells me is I have to you know really pay attention in those you know transition areas. When I'm moving the client from the car to wherever we're going, right? Because in and around the vehicle is a time where some some stuff's going to happen, and you'll see it time and time again where you know people get hit with an egg or God forbid an assault, but it happens in and around that car, and the protectors ask, act as though they weren't ready for it, right? So that's like A. B is you know things like the theory of uncontrolled spaces, understanding that you know that's where you know you need to understand these are the areas where it's going to happen. Okay, walking that client from the car to the house or walking the client from the hotel to the car. Those transition periods, those uncontrolled areas, that's where you need to be a little closer. That's where you need to be a little bit more vigilant. That's where you need to create strategies where you don't go out the same way you came in. You know, all those things instead of just going with, well, I've got a gun, I can handle it. That is just not the answer. Okay. It's fine to have a gun if that's your business, but 
as you know, if you've got to the point in a protective operation where you're drawing, you know, things have gone tragically wrong. They've just gone tragically wrong. Right. And, and the other thing I, I, I think people need to remember about the basics is distance. You know, distance is one of those things that as I study attacks, you know, I, I don't ever believe a bodyguard sets out to fail. First of all, let me just say that for the listeners. I do not believe a bodyguard intentionally sets out to fail. I think what happens when they do you know, fail is they are either mentally not prepared, meaning they're not engaged in the assignment. They're somewhere else mentally and or they're physically not in a position to respond effectively, meaning they're too far away. They're just too far away. Right. So distance is everything. If you study Jerry Parr and you look at Ronald Reagan, that that shooting, you know, Jerry Parr was on Reagan six, like less than an arm length. Right. And he's able to move Reagan into the car. Well, Jerry, you know, like a lot of clients, you know, will say, hey, give me space. Well, if Reagan had said to Jerry, give me space and Jerry gave him, you know, three feet. Well, who knows what happened? Maybe Hinckley's lucky with those rounds. You know, that's what I mean by physical distance to the principal. You know, and being a trained professional in this world, you know when you need to be close and you know when you can give some space based on the environment. Um, but those are the basics. And for me, that's the things I, I want to know. I mean, I don't want to talk about what caliber you're carrying. I want to talk about who's working the door handles. Right. I used to work with a really good friend of mine. And he said, you know, amateurs talk tactics and, and professionals talk logistics. You know, how, how are we going from point A to point B? Don't tell me about what round you're carrying. I could really care less. Let's just, you know, let's talk about these little things that are going to catch us, you know, in a bad way. Right. That's what I believe in. Oh, absolutely. And I think the more experience you have over time, the better you become at reading the temperature in the room and getting ahead of potential threats before they materialize. And sometimes it's not even about an attack on principles. Sometimes it's just the avoidance of an embarrassing moment, right? It can be a number of things, and each of these require different tools. The gun is just one tool in your toolbox. And if you're throwing lead down range, good, bad, or ugly, you're going to have a lot of explaining to do at the end of your day. And on that note, protection is a layered endeavor, and it reaches far beyond the body agent. The pre-planning, whether it's an advance or a threat assessment, is pivotal to success. And if you're a company or protector that's lacking in this space, it can really be a detriment to your client. James, could you explain how your team incorporates this umbrella of protection to best offer the most appropriate security service for your clients? Yeah, I mean, we're lucky in that you know, we do have a threat assessment division. That's all they do. We have a bunch of experts over there. I mean, nationally recognized experts, you know, Brian Niederholm, Gabby Thompson, who uh, they are the best at what they do. And, and I'll just tell you, frankly, when I was an FBI agent doing protection, I didn't know an awful lot about, you know, threat management. I didn't really understand that world. I actually believe that someone who had a, a spoken or written threat toward a principal was the one you should be concerned about. But in fact, that's just not true. You know, You'll hear Gavin or Gabby talk about the fact that it's the ones that don't threaten that are actually the ones you need to be concerned about. The ones that are consistently trying to have an inappropriate encounter, showing up at locations. You know, those are the things and those are the people you need to be concerned about. And those threat assessment investigations last years. You know, that's not just one one month, one week. It takes a long time and you need to use real threat assessment strategy. So for us, you know, it's all encompassing, meaning the client comes and says, hey, I want protection. OK, we do a risk assessment vulnerability assessment, you know, what do you have? What is the threat? What are we concerned about? You know, and that's a deep dive. That's a deep dive by many, many experts in our company. And then we kind of understand, you know, what is the, what's going on with this individual, right? And that can be a very specific threat. That can be a very specific individual who's pursuing them. That can be, you know, a general concern, meaning they're uh, in a group like high net worth individual or some religious affiliation or something that could rise them, you know, on a level of targeting. 
and then there could just be a general concern based on the fact that they're living in a certain area that might have a high crime rate or whatever. Um, you know, they need they need coverage. And so the protectors obviously are, are doing the work, but they're feeding intel to that threat assessment team. So license plates, you know, mail packages, you know, people showing up at the work, all of that stuff is fed back to a, a division that's managing, you know, all the pursuit against that client. Um, if you're not doing that, you know, it, it's almost like um, playing a game and not knowing the rules. You know, it, it's very, very difficult, you know, to understand. It, it, and I've done these assessments, man, where I've asked not in our company, but, you know, other companies have asked us to do what we call a gap analysis of their protection team. And one of the first questions I asked the protectors is, hey, what is the threat to your client? Right. Like what, what's the concern? Who is it a person? Is it a group? Is it a what, what do you got? And a lot of times they'll say to me, oh, there's no threat. And I'm like, well, that just can't be true because you don't need to be here, right? You don't need a job if there's nothing. There has to be something. And, and that's the other thing. I, I don't think people really understand. I'll give you, for instance, just because the CEO hasn't got a, you know, a dead cat in the mail you know, saying, I'm going to do this to you. Um, it doesn't mean there's not a concern. So I, I'll take a CEO as an example and say, you know, how many people did you fire last year? How many people did you, you know, was their medical insurance claim denied? How many people could be angry at this company? You know, and that number gets high, it gets high real quick. Well, those people that are angry, if they want to target the company, who do they choose to target? A lot of times it's the leader, right? It's the CEO. So there's a lot out there that they're not even aware of because they they haven't got the letter or that CEO or person could be insulated, meaning the staff's not showing or sharing, you know, what's coming in. And so when we do the assessment and we're talking to like the executive assistant, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, we have this guy that comes up. He shows up at the office. He actually showed up at the house one time. And you're like, what? You know, does he know about that? Oh, no, we didn't tell him. Well, OK, that see where I'm going. I mean, they're not even like involved in, you know, what the state of play is. Right. What's really the reality? Um, so, yeah, I think it's important. And we're just so fortunate that we have this you know, collection of experts and these you know, different. And I didn't mention investigations, you know, but. Brian Creter and his team do an incredible job of investigating, you know, all of these individuals, you know, where are they, what are they doing, you know, all of those types of things. It's, um, it's, it's a team effort. I mean, at the end of the day, the protector is the client facing your product, but there's a tremendous amount of support on the back of the house, if you will, that's, that's going into that success. I'm glad you brought this up. And like you mentioned, you can't operate in a silo. And as a protector, you just can't focus on it like it's my job and my job only. You've got to reach out to those other components that surround your client. Those executive assistants can be just a wealth of knowledge, and even other individuals, house managers, even the chef, can give you insights from an entirely different vantage point that may still need to be addressed. And if you're not talking or these lines of communications just don't exist, therefore important information isn't being passed along, and you're going to have some serious blind spots in the protection you're attempting to provide. So James, is there a major attribute that you look for in a potential hire that you found best is able to provide the appropriate blend of security and customer service to your clients? What I like is I like hiring nice people, okay? Someone who smiles, someone who's a friendly individual. Why? Because they're client-facing. They're dealing with client reps, chefs, EAs, drivers, whatever. You know, and they need to be nice people, okay? You can be you know, you know, the baddest-ass dude on the planet, and that's fine, I'm, whatever, but I need you to be smile and be nice to people because unlike the government or the police, you know, I can't flash a badge and get things I need from a hotel concierge. You know, I, I only get those things by being nice. I mean, one of the things we give our, our students is, you know, how to win friends and influence people, you know, great book. And it's, it's about, yeah, it's a great, great book about, you know, how, to, how do you 
get something from another individual? Well, they don't do things because they have to. They do them because they want to. And so how do you give them the want to? You know, I tell you, some of the best bodyguards I've seen are guys who are in the customer service world, you know, like a Four Seasons concierge type guy. They make great bodyguards, great bodyguards. Why? Because they know customer service. They know how to talk to people. They know how to smile and be kind. Um, and I can teach you to cover an evac, right? It's, it's, that's a critical piece. And I see that a lot when you hire, you know, guys from another world and, and they think, well, you know, I was in whatever world that the taxpayer paid me and it didn't matter if I was nice or not. Well, man, that's a totally different world out here. Oh, you're absolutely right. It is a totally different world. And it's not only external resources that you're going to need buy-in or compliance from. It's not always as easy when you don't have that badge to flash anymore and say you're going to comply whether you like it or not because you're in my world now. Um, it's also about the management of internal resources, client and otherwise. I think coming from government, you'll share a like-minded difficulty in cultural differences because in government, they really don't get to have a choice, right? You're assigned that protection and there it is. In the private sector, it's very different and the client can waive off protection and this happens quite often. Could you provide our audience with some insights as to how best to achieve compliance from a client who doesn't really have to listen to your recommendations? but really should in order to keep the integrity of their protection program. Yeah, that's one of the biggest one of the biggest things about, you know, doing government protection and doing private sector protection is this this phenomenon like you mentioned which is that wave coverage or the, you know, the a la carte nature of the work. You know, they might just say I'm not paying for that or I'm only going to pay for one guy or uh, I can drive myself. You know, there's all these things whereas in the government it was pretty much they had to have us. They didn't get a choice. The position came with the security, you know, and they had this detail thrust upon them and, and you didn't have to get a lot of buy-in. I mean, cause they just had to do it because it was their job. And, and, and frankly, I don't blame them for being resentful of it because it's a tremendous invasion into their personal life. You know I mean? It, it just is, that's just all there's to it. And so in the private world, you know, for me, a lot of the buy-in comes from, you know, like I say, I mean, Look, trust is a fragile thing and, and you don't gain trust by you can't buy it. First of all, you cannot buy another human being's trust. The only way you get it is by earning it. And what that means for us, for our protectors is, you know, every day you show up and you do your job, you do your job well. And, and you know, every day that you're you know doing that, you're putting some trust into that bank account for the client. And so, you know. It'll come down to that moment where they're like, hey, I'm traveling to wherever and I usually don't take security. But because I trust you, James, you know, I'd like you to go with me. Bam. Yes, sir. I'll go. Right. Because that's what you want. You want that that team to be. Obviously, you'd like it to be all encompassing. You'd like to be you know, home, work, travel, driving in between. Right. Like full service. Why? Well, because you can provide the adequate protection needed for that person. And it's consistent, meaning the guys are all trained the same. They're all in the same radio frequencies, blah, 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 blah. Um, when you're doing the a la carte, you know, it tells me sometimes, you know, that they don't have trust in your ability or they don't see the value in you coming. Right. And so what I want to do is work on them so they see the value and they understand and we build the trust. So we get to the point where we are traveling or we're you know picking up the kid or, or whatever. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's when you, you have that moment where they'll say something like, you know, you pick them up at the airport and they'll say something like, oh, gosh, it was a nightmare down there. The drivers didn't know where they were going, blah, 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 blah. And that's the moment for that protector to say, you know, sir, ma'am, we're happy to support you in the next trip. You know, that's your moment, right? That's like, you know, it's 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 the baseball analogy of the bottom of the ninth scores tied and you got to hit it, right? That's it. And you got to hit that thing. You've got to take that swing and you got to hit that ball. 
Um, and, you know, sometimes the protectors do and sometimes they don't. You know how it is. I mean, a lot of these guys are younger and they're, they're just, or they're just not, you know, mature enough to, to just say something like that because they're afraid they'll get in trouble or, or whatever. Um, but to me, that's that's when you take those opportunities and, you know, you build that trust. And, and luckily, we, we do have that. And, and But again, a lot of times they just like, hey, I don't want security there uh, and I'm going to waive it. And it's it's hard. It's hard to take because you want to be there for them. But, you know, they are paying the freight and that is definitely part of the business. It most definitely is, James. And, uh, you know, we also talk about those hard skills and soft skills so much. And you absolutely need those hard skills at the ready. However going to be those soft skills that make a lasting impression and they're really imperative to be an ass back or keeping a contract or even on a detailed team. I still remember taking my very first training course and the provider went around the room and asked, are you going to pick up your client's bag or not? And that really developed into a bit of a discussion around the room and, and let me tell you, there wasn't complete consensus. But from my perspective, especially as a former government staffer, of course I'm picking up their bag. Because at the end of the day, you're really just a value add, and that isn't always limited to security. Oftentimes, it's about making your client's life easier, more efficient, and of course, safe. And now on occasion, I love to ask people that same question, just to get a better idea of where their head's at and how they see their role amongst the client. Yeah, and then the government, you know, and police, military, whatever, you know, I always say, you know, the taxpayer doesn't get a vote. So, so you could basically be a, not a good person and not a very good protection agent, frankly, and you're still going to keep your job. You know, you're still, and, and unfortunately what happens if you do that for 10 years, I mean, I got a great you know, mentor in the company. He said, you might have 10 years of police experience, but it might be 10 bad years of experience. You know, like you might've been doing something the wrong way for 10 years. That doesn't mean you got good experience, right? And so if you have a protective agent who can't get fired because he's with the government and he's not very well liked and he's not very nice to be around and he doesn't give a damn about service. Well, he's not going to do very well in the private sector. He's just not, right? Because they do get a vote. They vote every single day. Those clients vote every day and they can say, hey, I'm firing you today. And, and they can. That's that's commerce, right? And they can go with another provider tomorrow. Um, and so, yeah, there's a certain there's a certain degree of service that must be incorporated in private sector security. And if you're not doing that, I would say you're, you're probably not going to have a long future uh, in the work. Oh, you're absolutely correct about that, James. And uh, as a former supervisor of mine, often like to state, every day is an interview day. And quite simply, your performance is always being evaluated by someone. And that should energize you to keep your standards high as well as consistent. And on those days when your mind starts to drift somewhere else, you go back to your foundation and that training you've previously received to get yourself straight and your mind right to quickly finish out your duties. And as we wrap up this interview today, I know we touched a little bit on the topic of threat assessments, and I certainly don't want to miss this opportunity to highlight an incredible upcoming event that's hosted by GDBA called the Advanced Threat Assessment Academy. You guys hold this uh, a couple times a year, and typically you place them on each side of the country. Um, you guys just had one in Lake Arrowhead, California, and you've got another one coming up in October. Um, I'd like to give you uh, some time as we close to share a little bit about this uh, training opportunity, as I'm sure we have people listening who are interested in attending a threat assessment training or are looking to develop or expand a threat assessment capability within their own security team or program. So as we finish up, I'm going to give you the floor to share the specifics of your Advanced Threat Assessment Academy. Thanks. Yeah, Gavin and a guy named uh, Bob Martin created Threat Assessment you know, years ago. And the academy is, is a four-day total immersion, if you will, 
on, on that world of strategies that actually do work and strategies that, that do not work. Uh, you know, the old belief system, especially what I learned in law enforcement was, okay, if a you know, individual is threatening someone, you know, our usual response is, you know, send some officers or agents over there and, you know, read them the riot act. And I'm not saying threaten them, but you're, you're basically intimidating them um, and tell them don't do anything stupid. Right. And, and then you kind of drive away. And then if he doesn't do anything, you know, then you kind of forget about it. Well, what you learn at the school is, well, he ain't forgot about you. Right. And threat assessment takes time. It takes patience. It takes real strategy. You know, like they'll teach strategies to people so they can manage, you know, especially because a lot of this is really geared toward corporate security directors, people who are working in a corporate security environment and they're doing dealing with workplace violence or they're dealing with, you know, uh, inappropriate relationships within the workplace or fi- should we fire this person? Should we not fire this person? You know, how to manage, you know, when someone threatens somebody, how do you manage that with without it going nuclear, right? So they do a tremendous job. I, learn, I, I go to all of them. I actually teach in all of them, but I just, I teach active shooter. Um, but the threat assessment piece of the training is, is just so good for you know, people who are new, who don't know anything about it, first of all, and are humble enough to admit they don't know anything about it. That's That's a big piece of it. And, you know, people that are, you know, in a corporate security role where, you know, as I found, a lot of those folks get saddled with everything. They have to deal with threat assessment. They have to deal with active shooter. They have to deal with access control. Sometimes they even have to deal with executive protection. So, you know, we know that dealing with a lot of, you know, director of security or corporate security professionals, you know, they have to be kind of a generalist in a lot of different areas. And threat assessment is certainly one of those areas. So I highly encourage people to come to it. It's very well received. We have, you know, the best instructors we have, you know, the people I've already mentioned, Gabby, Brian Niederhelm, you know, we're all there. I'm there. Um, And the other great thing is the network. You know, you're meeting people from all kinds of companies and you are obviously, you know, you're having cocktails at night and you're sharing business cards. And then you have a friend in such and such company or you have a friend there and then we are a resource. And so we always tell them you can call us anytime. You know, since you've come to the academy, we'll help you. We'll talk to you about what's going on with your case. You know, ask about the strategies you're using. We'll recommend some things. And it's a beautiful place. Lake Arrowhead, California, it's just a beautiful place uh, to, to hold a conference. And, and I can't recommend it, uh, you know, high enough. So th- thank you for letting me say that. Oh, you're very welcome, James. And I can personally attest Lake Arrowhead is a breathtaking part of California. As you know yourself, uh, not all areas of California are judged the same. That spot and the advanced threat assessment specifically are worth checking out. James, I thank you for your time as we close today. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you about some very interesting and relevant topics today. I look forward to having you back for more in the future. Love to do it. Thanks for having me, Ron. I'm just Thanks for everybody for listening. I really appreciate it. And be safe out there. Thanks for what you do. Thanks, sir. I will. You as well. Have a wonderful day. You too, sir. You got it, James. And for those of you tuning in today, thank you for listening to episode number three of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Until next time, stay safe. A dedication. Ladies and gentlemen, today's episode is dedicated to Deputy Sheriff Edward Joseph Alva of the Richland County Sheriff's Department. Deputy Edward Alva was shot and killed on Christmas Eve 1992 during a struggle with the suspect over the deputy's gun. Joe, as he was known by his friends and colleagues, served in law enforcement for five years before his death. He was survived by his two daughters, parents, and sister. May his sacrifice on that day and legacy never be forgotten.